Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. So this morning, we are in week eight of our series. And if you have your Bible, I do hope that you brought your Bible. If you don't, um, there are some that are spread out in the seats. Um, If you have a smartphone, you could probably get there quicker than some others. But we're going to be in Romans 6. Eventually, we're going to land there. Romans 6, starting in verse 15. Many years ago, whenever I, I myself was in the service, I had the, when I was in the Navy, I had the opportunity to go overseas, and I've told you some stories from that. And some things happened whenever I was overseas. I, I've, I've shared an experience that I, one of the experiences that I had at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem many, many years ago. And, you know, I, I've been kind of reflecting this week about that and now, you know, it's it's Veterans Day, so so we're we're thinking about that. I see it on Facebook. You know, I saw it again this morning at Starbucks, and I'm just kind of being reminded of this and kind of reflecting on the time that I spent overseas whenever I was in the Navy, and and I was reminded of uh, of experiences that I had specifically, and I remember that one of the times that I got to go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, I was absolutely captivated. And it wasn't just it wasn't just being there. I mean, it is a big deal to be there and to be in the Holy Land is is incredible. And and it's it's certainly, you know, it just it just really kind of made me come alive and just it was just an eye-opening experience. But I remember specifically that uh, that going up to the Wailing Wall and I remember you when you go to the Wailing Wall, which is the western wall in Jerusalem, and I remember going into the courtyard, this big open area before you, you can look upon the wall. But I remember going in and looking, and I was so captivated because all I could see was just a, a mass of people kneeling at the wall. And they call it the Wailing Wall because it's true. And people were at the wall. The Jewish people go there. It's, it's a great pilgrimage for, for them in their life. And I remember just being so captivated. I'm looking at these people, and they're just kneeling down at this wall, and they're just weeping. I mean, they're weeping just like they had lost a loved one like the moment before. And I thought to myself, Wow, even I remember I've gone there twice, but I remember the first time I was kind of captivated. I wasn't even a follower of Jesus at the time, and the second time I was. But I remember both times I was like, there is something about that that it was just kind of like it really got my attention. And I started to think, what would make these people weep simply being at a wall? I mean, it's like, you know, it's like rock. That's all it is. It's just like a wall of rock. And to most other people, you would look at it and say, wow, it's just Rock, And I knew there was something different about the people, and specifically the Orthodox Jews, that when they would make this pilgrimage to the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, that those people, there, there was some sort of tie-in to their religious belief that it could only be found at that wall. And I couldn't just, they didn't, they didn't talk, it was very somber. As a matter of fact, I, I believe I've told you part of this story, but even during that time they were warning us as being, uh, they knew that we were, Americans, it's like, you know, it's so obvious. It's like wearing a banana suit around. It's like everybody, you go overseas, and they're like, oh, that's the random American, you know. With me, it was really obvious because I had a Miami Dolphin jacket on. And the 90s uh, Miami Dolphin logo was absolutely huge, big, and gaudy. I still have the jacket. Um, I might wear it next Sunday. And I, 
I have this jacket on, and they're like telling us, hey, be careful when you go up to the Wailing Wall, and, and you know, just be mindful when you go up there and be respectful. Don't make it too obvious that you're an American, right? Uh, what am I going to do about this thing? You know, and the logo's huge, and it's even bigger on the back, and I'm like, I guess I'll just, I guess I'll just respect them. But I remember, even, even after I was a follower of Jesus and going to that wall, I knew there was something about, the, about what I had received from Christ that was a different expression as to what I saw at the wall. But then I saw something else. Not in that time, but when I would walk along the streets of Turkey, and I would, we would go and we'd have a port of call usually for about four or five days, and we would go into these countries, and we would literally have about two days of being able to go about and see things. And I remember I, I would we were just kind of walking around in, in the marketplace and through the city and all of those things. And I remember it was just so surreal to me because all of a sudden everything stopped. And I didn't I didn't know where to put it. I didn't know what exactly what I was experiencing, but but everything stopped. And all of a sudden there started to be some some a different language that I didn't understand, and they started to, to speak this language over a bunch of loudspeakers, and people would just stop right where they were, and they would just kneel down wherever they were, and they would just point toward a certain direction, and that they would pray. And I remember being so captivated by that, even as a follower of Jesus, because I knew there was something about that religious system that was compelling to me, that I'd look at that and I would say, I just don't see that in the church that I'm at. I was like, they would just stop what they're doing. And I thought to myself, why? Why would they do such a thing? So I was curious. But then I started to do some, some just study, background study, and, and then I started to realize that the, the prayers that I heard was prayers of Islam. And one of, the, one of, the, of the, the five pillars of Islam is that they would stop, and they have to stop and pray five times a day. And if they don't, it has drastic and damning consequences in their faith. And yet, then I started to look through, and I'm like, okay, so that's a world religion. And I'm like, I don't understand that, and that's like the tenet of their faith, and they have to do that, and it's very strict. And the way that they live their life is very strict, and yet the way of Christ is, is not as strict in that way. But, but I was perplexed, and I didn't understand what it was. But then as I pressed in further, I realized that for them, they have to pray to get God's attention. And if they don't pray, they'll never be okay with God. They'll never be at peace with God. And if they don't pray, then, then, then they won't have the promise of eternal life. But then I pressed in a little bit further just because I'm curious. Maybe it's weird to you. And then I look at a different picture. I've never had any personal experience with this, but just a study of, of the Buddhist people. And I look at like the Buddhists, and there's ten tenets of their faith. And they're very, very strict. And I have to tell you, with the Buddhists, it's the same way as, as with Islam. It's a matter of works. And it's if you have the five pillar, pillars of Islam, it's all about the person working out their salvation, quote-unquote. It's all about them working. And then with the Buddhists, it's all about them working. And it's all about them working. With the Orthodox Jews, it's, they've got to go pray because they've got this connection at the Wailing Wall with Solomon. But Solomon isn't God. He was never God. But they worship him as if he is. And what separates all of those world religions and the experiences that I have had is this word that we're going to study today. 
grace. Because all of those world religions, it's all about them working out something to gain something from God. But the work of grace that we have through Jesus Christ in this this word called grace is something we have not done anything to deserve. And yet it was freely given to us. And yet, with those other world religions, and the stories that I just told, for them, they're trying to get God's attention by the things that they do. And yet, it's the same, you see the same things kind of lived out in in our culture right now with, there's Jehovah's Witness. For them, it's a matter of working out their salvation so that hopefully they'll be part of the 144,000. And if you don't make the cut, so sorry. That means you have to be really, really, really morally good. There's no grace in that. And yet, if you look at Mormonism, very prominent, very moral. For them, their morality is the very thing they think is going to make God shine upon them so that one day they will also be saved. All of those world religions, false as they are, all of them, cry out to a false god based on their own level of morality and effort. And yet, if we're followers of Jesus, we live under this word called grace. What separates the Christian faith from all those other things is grace. It's worshiping the one true God. Worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And yet, in in the world that we live in, everybody's crying out, trying to gain something that only God can freely give. So those of us who are under grace, who've been saved by Jesus, understand this. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you don't have some responsibilities. Just because you're saved doesn't mean that you have a license to do whatever it is that you want to do. As a matter of fact, this has been a question that has existed since the first church. In 2 Corinthians 6, 1, Paul wrote to the people in Corinth, and he says this, this will be on the screen. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Don't just receive God's grace and say, thank you very much, and live the life the, the way that you want to live. That's not the way of grace. Grace is something that is freely given to us, but it's not something that just means we get to live life the way we want to. And yet in the question that hopefully will be answered today is this. If I am saved by grace, what should my life look like? If I am saved by grace, what should my life look like? If I don't have to work for my salvation as all of those other world religions, what should my life look like if I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm under grace? Does that mean that I have free will to do whatever it is that I want to do? I don't think so. Does that mean that I'm bound to something, although that I am under grace? Yes. But let's let the Word speak to us on this. Romans 6 15. The, the question that was being asked to the people in, in our main text this morning is, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm dead to sin and I'm alive, to cry, alive in Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm not going to sin anymore? Does that mean that I'm under grace? Does that mean I get to just kind of freestyle and live life the way I want? And if I sin, so be it. So Paul presses into this. There's going to be four main 
uh, kind of takeaways that we really kind of bore into today. Let's start in Romans six fifteen. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? He's like, okay, so, so the, the Jewish law, we don't have to live by the law. Does that mean I just get to do whatever I want to do? Everything's cool. I get to choose whatever I want to choose and chase all my worldly desires? No. He says, by no means, at the end of verse 15. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. There's a word in here that your Bible most likely has the word slaves. And then maybe if you read from the King James Version, it actually says servants. And I'll tell you why that's important. The King James Version will, will use the word servants, but I don't believe it's the best translation, or, uh, yeah, best translation of that word that can be used in the Bible. Because 50% of the Roman population were actually slaves. The Romans would go in and dominate a people, and they would just force them into slavery. So when, when this was written to the Roman Christians, the church in Rome, this would speak not just to, it, it would speak right into their culture saying, hey, I understand that a great majority of you may be slaves. And it says, and understand, he's using a word that they would clearly understand. And us in our culture, we would tend to push away from that word because we don't like that word. Because our history has a bad, or excuse me, our country has a bad history with that word. It does. It's been taken advantage of. But in the Bible, it, it in of it itself is there for a reason. That word is, is very much telling us what's going on in that culture. So just because we may not like the word doesn't mean that it's not true. Even if our experience in this country has not done well with it. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to, to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Stop right there. So verse 15, and the first takeaway this morning, we'll, verse 15 and 16, we'll kind of unpack this. First takeaway is this, grace is freedom from the grip of sin. Grace is freedom from the grip of sin. Sin has control of you. If you are not in, in Christ, you, you are in your sin and you have no power to overcome it. If you are not in Christ, you are left to your own morality to try and earn a salvation that will not, you will not be able to fulfill that in your life. And yet, grace is, a, is the freedom from the grip of sin, the, the power of sin. It's a way out. The law is what Paul is talking about here. The law was only, it was written in a way to reveal sin to them, not to free them from it. It was just to say, hey, you're a sinner. Hey, you're a sinner. Hey, you're a sinner. And grace is such a wonderful thing. Get this, Christian. Grace is such a wonderful thing because it doesn't take away the consequences of sin at all times, but it says you can have victory over sin. But if you're not in grace, if you're not in Christ, and you don't have the, the grace that comes with being in Christ, you have no power over sin. None. You, you may fool yourself into thinking you do, but you do not. That's what Paul's talking about here. Grace is the victory over the temptation to sin. Over the temptation to sin. 
It allows you to, to know that there's a way out. God has a way of, of, of looking into your life and revealing such things to you so that you see your sin condition and you walk away from it. That's God's grace. He allows you to see, wow, this is who I was before Christ, but now that I'm in Christ, I am different. And why in the world would I want to chase the person that I once was and put away the things that I'm becoming? Grace is victory over the temptation to sin. But I will say this. Two different things lead to sin. Legalism or a legalistic practice of saying, hey, yeah, yeah, you've got Jesus, but you also need to do this, 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 and this. You see, if that's what the Christian life was, if it was, hey, you, yeah, you've got Jesus, but in order to be saved, you've got to pray, you've got to give, you've got to serve, you've got to attend, you've got to evangelize, you've got to do all this, our, 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 that, that type of religious system would be the exact same thing as all of the, the things that I talked about earlier because it would depend upon your effort. And Jesus plus anything equals what? Nothing. Jesus plus your self-effort to be saved equals nothing. There's, you'll be bankrupt on the other side. That's what this is talking about. So we can't have a legalistic approach to our faith to say, yeah, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross to take away my sin, and I, went, I, you know, I came forward, I prayed the prayer, it was real to me, I'm following you, Jesus, and now I've got to work out my salvation because if I don't keep working and doing and doing and giving and doing all this, then I'm going to lose it. That should be clear over the last two weeks, but just in case it's not. But also, it's, it doesn't lead us. Grace is not a license to sin or licentiousness. It's a big $5 word, but it means a license to sin. Grace isn't a license to sin to say, Woo! Yeah, I'm under grace. Now I can do whatever I want to do. And I have to tell you, but there have been people who call themselves followers of, followers of Jesus who are uneducated and not discipled and who have done the very thing, and it is damaged churches, and destroyed families where people have used grace as an excuse to do whatever it was that they wanted to do. And they pull up the grace card and say, no, I'm under grace. You, you can't touch this. I thought about illustrating that point with some MC Hammer pants, but I decided not to. <laughs> Only because I didn't have them. I didn't, you know. You have some? I was afraid you'd say that. Um... Many times, for us, we think, we think grace is, is kind of like the limbo, right? I would do the limbo, but I'm actually not flexible, and I would get hurt, and then you'd laugh. So I'm not going to do that. But many times, we think grace is like the limbo. It's like, thank you, God, for setting this standard, but now I get to live by grace, and now I get to go under the standard, and, oh, I'm great, I'm, I'm under grace, and now it's just like the limbo. It's like, I, I didn't meet the standard, but that's okay, and I can do whatever it is I want to do. But grace is more so like the high jump. You see, the law was kind of like the limbo, saying, hey, here's the bare minimum. Here's the bare minimum. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. That's the bare minimum. Don't steal. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. That's the bare minimum. That's the law. That's easy. Right? All of that's easy. 
And yet, if we think grace is just an excuse to do whatever it is that we want to do, understand this. Grace is more like the high jump of saying, hey, here's the minimum standard, but I want to, I want to achieve over that. You see, here, here's how it works out practically. The law says do not murder. Grace says you don't even have to have evil thoughts towards your neighbor. As a matter of fact, it says you can actually love your neighbor. The law says do not commit adultery. Grace says, I'm going to give you power over the temptation to even look lustily upon someone else. The law says, do not steal. But grace says, I'm going to allow you to see what it looks like when you take somebody else's stuff and how bad that really is for yourself and for them. See, there's a grace element in that. Grace can be found everywhere. I love the song that we just sang. Grace is everywhere. The presence of God's grace is everywhere. We just have to open up our eyes to see it. And yet many times we, we live in, in a world and we live our faith out like grace is just a limbo, like I can do whatever it is that I want to do. And we, why would we do such things when we know that Jesus had to die for the very victory over our sin and our shame and our guilt? Why would we want to, to knowingly continue to sin that our sins would be continually nailed upon the cross over and over and over again? Why would we want to do so? Of course, we wouldn't. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this. I thought this was just a brilliant quote, and, and it, so it helps make sense of this. He says, free will, this will be on the screen, it says, free will I have often heard of, but I've never seen it. I have met with will and plenty of it. But look at this. But it has either been led captive to sin or held in the blessed bonds of grace. He's saying, and I believe that, he, that this is a, a, a good valid teaching of the word of God. He says that you have to understand your, your will is either in, in the grip of sin or it's held in the blessed bonds of grace. There is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. No middle ground at all. He says, oh, there, you have free will. And for us, the reason why I share this is, don't think that you have a free will. Now you're under grace. Now you have a free will to do whatever it is that you want to do. Because if we look at the, at the, the whole of this text that, that I'm preaching today, you will see that either your will is either in the grip of Satan or it is in the blessed bonds of God's grace. There is no middle ground. Grace is God's answer to our fallen nature. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation. It's for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and it appeared through our Lord Jesus. Then there's another scripture I want to share with you also. It's John 1.17. Many times we, we have to... I want this to be etched in your mind, this right here. It says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. Here, here's why this matters. It's not grace and law. It's grace and truth. See, the grace is that Jesus died to take away our sin. But the truth is, when we sin, there are still going to be consequences. And you may be saved from your sin. And you could be a follower of Jesus where you've given your life to Jesus. But yet, when we sin, there are still consequences. 
And those consequences are there not to make us just to feel bad and not, not to make us live destroyed lives, but the consequences are there so we will look back upon His grace so that we will want Him all the more. That's grace and truth. And Jesus was the embodiment of both things. Then also, Ephesians 3.12, it says, In Him, or in Jesus, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Only because of Jesus. Get this, church. Look at the words on the screen. In Him, in Jesus, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and, what's the next word? Confidence. That Jesus is the go-between between us and the Father. And because the grace that was poured out among us and poured out on us, those who are followers of Jesus, we, we've had a personal connection with this. And yet, we can now, because of His grace and the work that was done on the cross, now we may approach our Lord with freedom and confidence and not worry and doubt. Not worry and doubt. God's grace does not eliminate human responsibility, though. If you look at verse 16, look at this. Pay close attention to this, please. Romans 6, 16, it says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the, home, to the one whom you obey? The word obey is used in saying, hey, there is a human responsibility in living out and in, in living under the grace that Jesus provides. That every one of us, even if we're, if we're under grace and we're saved, right? And we're, we're sealed and we're saved, we're eternally secure, we have assurance of salvation, we know that we know that we know that we're saved, right? Even if that's the case. It says you have to understand every single day in every situation, you have to decide whom you're going to obey. Are you going to obey what it brings out here? Are we going to obey our sin nature or are we going to obey the grace of God? Are we going to put our lives there? And what it says in verse 16, don't you know that when you offer yourselves, you, you offer yourselves, you make a choice to someone, you obey him as slaves. You are slaves to the, home, to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. That there's no middle ground. And we have a human responsibility that when someone wrongs you, do you extend grace or do you withhold grace? But in accordance to the end of this, and I believe it's pretty clear, he says whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And if we're walking uh, and, and we're, we're living in accordance to the teachings of Jesus, and when we undergo hardship like Jesus underwent hardship, we need to respond like Jesus did. And that's the way of righteousness. But we have a choice to, to play, or you know, a choice to make in this. And God's grace doesn't eliminate human responsibility. It simply gives us a choice. It gives us a choice. We could be saved, but we still have a choice on what we're going to do. As we're not robots. Verse 17 through 19. But thanks be to God that though you, were, you used to be slaves to sin... You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. 
You who have been set free from sin have become slaves to righteousness. I put this, look at, the, look at the way that Paul writes this in a personal way. He says, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. He says, if you're thinking, if you're thinking carnally, if you're just thinking in your mind, you're not going to get this. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to help you understand this and live this out. He says, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer human responsibility them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. The difficulty is right here. The difficulty is right here. Because when somebody does you wrong, our sin nature is at war with the person that God is wanting to develop in us. And our sin nature says, when you do me wrong, to withhold forgiveness and not to forgive and, and to withhold grace and say, forget it. You know, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing, I'm not doing that. I don't care what you said. I'm not doing You offended me. I am not going to allow you to have victory over this. Of course, that's not the way we're supposed to live. And it says, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity, into ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness that leads to holiness. You see, God, as He sanctifies us and He works on us, and he, He's setting us apart right here in this time. If you're a follower of Jesus, He's trying to set you apart and He's preparing you for heaven. He's trying to set you apart. He's, he's trying to, to help you to live more holy. Not that you would be sinless in this life, but you will sin less in this life. That's what this is talking about. And we still have a, a responsibility for us. And as a matter of fact, grace, the, the second takeaway is, grace has to become the follower's way of life. It has to affect every part of you. That we would understand that, that grace isn't just, it isn't just the limbo. That grace compels us to live differently than the world. To allow God to penetrate every part of us in every relationship, in our marriage, in the way that we raise our kids, in the wind, the, your attitude when you go to work. It penetrates everything. Everything. And yet we're no longer slaves to sin. And now we are slaves to righteousness. But the amazing thing about this is, grace allows us an opportunity to not be a slave to sin. Because if you are not walking with Jesus, and maybe this is some of you in here, if you're not walking with Jesus, you are enslaved by your sin and there is no way out. There's no way out. You, you are powerless to have victory over that. But if you're in Christ and you have received the grace of God, by the power of God, He gives victory over sin. It's either one or the other. And it becomes our way of life. Grace lived properly leads to righteousness lived purposefully. I'll say it again. Grace lived properly leads to righteousness lived purposely. What that means is this. 
That now, when, when somebody does you wrong, and somebody offends you, whether it's somebody in your home, or it's your boss, or your teacher, or, or a, a fellow student, when somebody does you wrong, the way of grace is to say, you know what, I, I, could, I could withhold judgment on them, I, or rather, I could just press judgment on them, I could just say, you know what, I could get mad, I could get angry, I could become bitter, I could wish bad things about them, I could talk behind their back, and you know what, that's the sinful way, of course, but the grace element is, in accordance with Ephesians 4.32, it says, now, because of God's grace, I can be kind, I can be compassionate, I can forgive just as the Lord Jesus has forgiven me. But outside of God's grace, all you have is anger, slander, malice, rage, and bitterness. Grace gives us an alternative and it gives us the power to do it through God's grace and His power. We're told in 2 Peter 3.18 that we're supposed to grow in grace. We're supposed to grow in grace. This is part of, of, of the walk with God and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're saved. That means you're not perfect, but you're being perfected from that day forward. That, that you're saved, and yet in the eyes of God, if He were to take you away right now, once you're saved, you're, you're sealed and saved. And He keeps you, and you can have assurance of your salvation, and you're eternally secure. But while you're on earth, we're still to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ. We're supposed to grow in that. We're supposed to grow in that. 1 John 3.9. This, this will be on the screen, but I, I want to share something specific about this verse. Uh, this is actually from the English Standard Version. And this is, a, this is an, an amazing um, translation of this verse. The NIV doesn't make this verse as clear as this is. Because it says right here that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So that's somebody who's born again, right? We've talked about that. We talked about that a few weeks ago. I reminded you last week. This is a born-again believer. Born with new desires, a new longing, a new purpose, new future, new relationships, everything. You're being born again. That's when somebody becomes in Christ. Everything starts to change and we're born again in Christ. That's what this is talking about. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Many times, many, many, many times, we, people have taught this verse and they've taught it incorrectly. They've taught this verse and saying, hey, if you're in, if you're, if you're in Christ and you're saved by, by the grace of God, then you, you should never sin again. As a matter of fact, the NIV actually renders this wrong. That word where it says practice of sinning is the word poieo in in the Greek, and that's the original language. And it literally means somebody who continually, habitually continues to sin. Who habitually, continually, or continually and habitually sins. So just saying, this for you, if you're a born-again Christian, this this should speak volumes into your life. That you should not you should not be sinning intentionally, ever. You should not be. What John says right here in 1 John 3, 9, he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one just continues to sin and just continues to sin and willfully just continues to sin and just makes it a habit of sinning. Just like, you know what? Yeah, I'm under grace. Who cares? Whatever. Whatever. Yeah, I'm saved. i got my grace card now. I'm good to go. I can do whatever it is that I want to do. What John is saying in, in this text is, How in the world can somebody 
If they have been born again with new purpose, new relationships, new desires, how in the world can they just habitually and continue to sin if God has set them free from sin? Like there, there has to be a major problem in someone's life if they just continue to sin, just continue to sin because, well, now I'm saved and now I get to do whatever it is that I want to do and I'm just going to ignore parts of the Bible that I don't like and I'm going to, I'm going to read the ones that I do like. Oftentimes when it comes to things in the Bible that become difficult are the things that we need to press into the most. The things that, 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 that we try and make muddy that are actually crystal clear in the Bible, those are the things that we just need to be quiet, we just need to be still before God, and we need to allow God to be God and just to speak through His Word to us. So grace is something we grow in. Grace lived properly leads to righteousness lived purposefully. And yet, grace is something we should never use as an excuse to continue to sin. As a matter of fact, we should wake up every single morning, get this church, we should wake up every single morning and say, God, reveal to me all of the things that I have, offend, that, that I have offended you with. Every single day, say, God, I want to walk in your presence all day long. I don't want to sin, not even one time. And if I do fail, fall short of you, God, please remind me quickly so I can confess it and I can repent of it. That's what this is talking about. That no one born of God, no follower of Jesus, would just continue to sin the way that they used to. And he says he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. He's like, it just can't happen. When you're born again, it's like you can't undo that. What this speaks into is if you're a follower of Jesus and you're growing, right, and you're growing in His grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, then you are, these are going to be kind of complicated words, but I'm just going to use them, I'm just allowed to kind of soak in. We can be growing in a walk with Jesus and we can be unintentionally unrepentant. Unintentionally unrepentant. What that means is that we can, we can do things and we can live our life and yet we can do things to offend God even not intentionally and not intend to. And when we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, He reveals sin to us. And it's not that we're going to be sinless, but we're going to sin less. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us and reveals to you, hey, you, you, you violated me today. You, you've fallen short today. So we confess that brokenness before God. We confess the sin and, and the way that our hearts have drifted. And then we repent of that and we turn away. We can do so in every Christian who is growing in one way or the other, is unintentionally unrepentant. But what 1 John 3.9 is talking about is somebody who is intentionally unrepentant. That means they're picking and choosing the Bible and say, you know what, I'm going to stay right here. And the, the, these verses make me feel all warm and cuddly inside. So now, oh, I just feel so good about these. But there's these other verses that I'm like, I'm not, I don't even want them because if I read them, then I'm going to be accountable to it. He says, and now in that moment, we have become intentionally unrepentant. And that is what First John's talking about here and saying, how can somebody be intentionally unrepentant? He says, I get the unintentionally unrepentant part because God's working in all of us. And I am unintentionally unrepentant. I am. And every person who, who has the opportunity to come across this, 
this platform and speak to you is in the same way that we're not chasing worldly things, but as our hearts drift and as our mind drifts, maybe our eyes drift and we look at something we shouldn't and we come back to God and we don't even mean to offend God. And then we come back and we confess and repent of that. But there are some other people, probably people who are even in this room or would hear this message online in future days who are living their life in accordance and they're actually abusing God's grace and they are intentionally unrepentant. They're picking and choosing what they want to believe. They're picking and choosing because they know if they were actually to adhere to the fullness of the word of God, their lives would look drastically different and their desires would have to be destroyed. They would have to walk across the room and they would have to ask forgiveness for people that they've offended. They would have to go to that same person at work that you avoid over and over and over again and you've gossiped about and you've talked bad about and you've slandered them and you've wished bad things upon them, which is malice, and you've done all these things. And that means if you're to actually grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that means you would have to walk across the room and talk to that person and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But if you are intentionally unrepentant, get this, you are shut off from the power of God. You are shut off from fellowship with God. And the times when you go to pray and you're like, God, speak to me. And he's like, not going to hear it. Because you've got this, this thing, you're intentionally unrepentant. Yeah, you want to pray, God, please come here. And he's like, yeah, but you see, there's this cloud of sin that's actually separating us. And I want, to, I want you to just open your heart and pour your heart out to me. I get that, but I want you to confess that sin, the sin that you are intentionally unrepentant of. It's that thing that's keeping you from the fullness of the power of God working in your life. I know that speaks to some of us in here. I know that it does. And I... I the fullness of grace is this. If you failed and you realize that you failed, God always gives a way out. But it's not by continuing to sin. That's what First John talks about. Somebody who just keeps on sinning and keeps on sinning and keeps on sinning. I'm saying somebody who is unintentionally unrepentant understands, wow, I've sinned. Jesus died for that. I don't want to do that again. I'm not going to just make this sin a habit. I'm not just going to continue in this sin. I'm going to change by the power of God, by the work of God, of the Holy Spirit. We see something else about being unintentionally unrepentant. Verse 21, Romans 6, 21 says this. He says, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. He says, but now you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. See, this is maybe something that I just want this just to wash over you. The third takeaway this morning is grace offers forgiveness of your past. Grace offers a forgiveness of your past. You can start brand new today. You can walk in fellowship with God starting right now, today. 
Some of you may have been out of fellowship with God and you, you, you pray and they seem like your prayers are not heard and you've, you're trying to do the right thing, but yet you have to allow God to work in and through you. You have to allow Him to reveal that sin to you so that He can make you holy. But in the course of that, you can come back fresh today, church. Grace offers the forgiveness of your past. Verse 21. I had to read this several times to actually get what he's saying here. Let's look at it fresh. Verse 21. He says, What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? He's telling them. And maybe I'm just going to speak this over you, church. What he's telling this audience, he says, remember, remember when you were living your life on your terms? Remember before you had God's grace? Remember that? Remember you used to walk around angry all the time and every day you, you felt terrible? You, people avoided you because your anger was explosive? He says, remember that? But he says, and also remember how good God's grace feels right now because, but, but, you, but you don't forget your past. But he says, now look how good God's grace is. Remember when you used to man manipulate people? You were really, really good at it. You did this at work all the time. And you could manipulate people to do whatever it is that you wanted to do. And you felt good about it, but it was wicked. Paul is saying, do you remember that? But now, but now do you, do, you, do, you, do you realize how good it feels to be under God's grace? That now you don't do that anymore. And now people actually approach you in a whole new way. And people actually come to you with advice. Where before when you would manipulate them, they thought to themselves, all they're doing is trying to get me to, to do whatever it is that they want to do. So I'm going to avoid them. Remember, remember that time in your life when you were sexually promiscuous? Remember that time? When you were doing whatever it you wanted to do and you justified who you were with at the time. But remember how your soul took a beating? Remember that? Remember when your soul took a beating and after a while you went through person after person after person and then eventually you lost who you were? But also remember when you knelt before God and you confessed that as sin? And remember how good His grace feels after your life has been changed since then. Do you know... Grace can be found in those moments too. Remember how, how your pride used to well up in you and everywhere you, that, you, that you would go, you, you thought that you were basically superior of everyone else. You were, the, you were the elite. You had all the answers to everybody's problems, everybody's questions you were seeking to answer because a basis of your pride, not because you wanted to help them, because you wanted to make yourself known. But he says, but do you rem remember how how good it feels to be under grace and to actually humble yourself and to actually see God do His thing instead of you trying to take His thing away from Him. Remember that? Remember that? Remember when people used to avoid you? Remember that? Remember how, how people just used to avoid you? Like, you're walking around bitter and you're never encouraged and you, you know, maybe even you even called yourself a follower of Jesus, but you walked around as if, you know, your dog had died every single day. It's like, wow, poor, poor, pitiful me. And people just avoided you. They're like, man, that person is depressing. And they say they're a Christian. So now, if, if that's what a picture of a Christian looks like and somebody walks around depressed, somebody who's not a Christian says, you know what? I'm going to choose something else. He says, remember when that's how you used to be? But now, 
You're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And now your life's different. And now you walk around kind of with a smile on your face. Now you even have joy in difficult situations. And now, he says, now people, listen to me, listen to me. Now even when you endure hardship, people look at you and they say, wow, how in the world are they staying sane in that situation? How how can they have a smile on their face when their loved one is, is hurting as much as they are? How can they have the sense of inner peace? Like, I don't understand that. I've like I've looked at other people who call themselves religious and they don't have that, but now they're looking to you because you have this just contagious joy. And he says, Remember that grace? Remember how good that feels? Remember that? Because grace offers forgiveness. Of our past. But he says, but now, verse 22, now you've been set free from sin and you've become slaves to God. And the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. Fourth takeaway this morning, as we just press on the rest of this in verse 23. This is scripture we're probably familiar with. Um, quite possibly, if you're a follower of Jesus, somebody probably shared this scripture with you. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because grace offers the follower a bright future. A bright future. Grace does. If you allow the grace of God to work in and through you, it leads to a bright future. It leads to when we're obedient because we have a human responsibility. Though we're under grace, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't basically create some sort of system to where it's like the limbo and it's like the minimum standards. It's like the high jump. Say, now I'm under grace. Now I can try. Now I can serve. Now I can obey. I'm under grace. I don't have to work for my salvation. I have it, but because of it, my heart wells up and now I want to be, to be obedient to this God who died for me. And he says, and that obedience then leads to holiness, and then that holiness leads to eternal life. That's our bright future. Heard a story recently. It's this idea of, of eternal life. Oftentimes we think of eternal life as far as just being eternity. Like, okay, we, we're going we're gonna to punch the clock, we're going to live our 75, 80, 90 years, and then once we die, eternal life starts, Right? But, but I heard a story, and it was told this way. To think of eternal life is like somebody who, who has kids, and they say that, that parenting is just about having toddler children. And, like, that's just parenting. And, like, after they leave the toddler stage, then, you know, then they're on their own. My parenting is done, right? I have an 18-year-old. Look at moms are in here like, they're no, no way. That isn't even true. But oftentimes, if we just think of eternal life as far as, well, that's when I get to heaven, woo, eternal life, getting to heaven, we miss the fullness of what God is telling us here because the bright future starts at the moment of salvation. It starts at the moment of salvation that when we are set free from the bondage of sin. But to say that eternal life just starts when we get to heaven is like saying that parenting just has to do with toddlers. You know, that's so real to us. We have an 18-year-old. He's a senior. We're, we're trying to see what we're praying about, and we're trying to counsel through what the future looks like. And I believe the future is bright for my son, but yet uh, I know this full well, right? 
Like, this isn't easy. And I would say in, in the toddler stage, it, in, in many ways, it was actually much more easy than what it is to try and parent an 18-year-old. Moms, once again, our heads are like crowing crazy right now. They're like, yeah, you don't even know. And then some do. As we bring all this to a close, I'm going to ask you some questions. And this is going to be your application. This is going to be your application. If you have a pen, you may want to write these down. These will be on the screen. But this is just some ways that you can take this message home. Oftentimes, I think like a, a, a message is, is kind of like putting together a skeleton, and then your own personal study will kind of put meat on it and put skin on it and, and hair and everything else. But I want to kind of help you to develop this starting today. First question is this. Do you have an increasing awareness of your sins? Do you have an increasing awareness of your sins? I'm talking day to day. I'm not just talking about when, when you come and hear from me and, and, and something that is spoken from this stage. I'm not, I'm not only talking about that. Certainly, well, there's been many times where, where I will hear uh, a message from the Word of God. And I have to tell you, the Word of God is an equal offender. Right? It is an equal offender. doesn't matter if you're a preacher, teacher, whatever. Everybody. The Bible is an equal offender. But I have to ask you, do you have an, an increasing awareness of your sins? Second question is this. Have you ever used I'm under grace as an excuse for your behavior? Have you ever used, you know what, I'm under grace. And you used it as an excuse for your behavior. You may never have said it, but let me ask it a different way. Have you ever thought it? Like, I'm under grace. It, it isn't really going to matter in this moment. I can go do what it is that I want to do. I mean, I'm under grace, and yeah, that's cool. I mean, pff, I got all that part. I'm not questioning that part, but you just don't do anything with it. Third thing is this. Are you growing in grace with God and other people? Do you realize that, that for you... It is impossible to just grow in grace with God and not grow in grace with other people. Because oftentimes, it's people that we're in relationship with, even people that we're married to or our kids, they become to us a mirror of all our shortcomings. Isn't that true? And, and when they become more like us and they do something and we're reminded, oh, I know exactly where they got that from, their mom. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know exactly where it came from. And I just have to say, are you growing in grace with God and others? And many, many, many times we will be reminded of this by how we interact with other people. Or maybe how our prayers are received and felt. Fourth thing is this. When you wrestle with God over quick obedience, who wins? When you wrestle with God over quick obedience, He reveals something to you in the moment. He reminds you, He says, hey, you need to be quiet here, but yet you're like, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue and this is a good one. I really want to make them feel it. Ugh. Who wins? When you wrestle with God over quick obedience, who wins? Fifth thing is this. When's the last time you had just a time of open confession before God? When's the last time 
that you've just you've been real with God and you've just sat and you maybe you kneeled or maybe it was even in this place or listened to worship music or even in your car or in the woods or in, in a back room, wherever. When is the last time you just had open confession before God and you just exposed all of your weaknesses that, that kind of come to mind? And you just confess them for what they are, shortcomings, sins, failures. Sixth thing is this. Do you have joy even in difficulties? Do you have joy even in difficult circumstances? See, all of these things and how you answer all these things is basically, it's a measuring rod to see how well you're doing and growing in grace. But do you have joy even in difficult circumstances? Seventh thing is this. Do you have victories over personal sins? Do you have victories over personal sins? Because if we're really and truly walking in God's grace, we will live in the victories that God provides. And He gives victories over our sin nature. He gives victories when we, when we feel like that what we need to do and all of this, all our pride wells up and maybe we even have lust that, that just sweeps through our mind or we have all of these things. You see, the grace of God just permeates all those things and He provides victory over personal sins. He provides victories over the temptation to sin. All of these seven things become a measuring rod to see how well you're doing in grace. I don't know where this message lands with you. But I have to tell you this. If you're not in Christ, there is nothing like God's grace. You can chase a, a world religion. You can chase the, the ten tenets of Buddhism. You can chase the morality of the Mormons. You can chase the Jehovah's Witness and try and get your spot into the 144,000. Or you can you know, basically live your life like the... Islam people do and to where you have to pray five times a day and you have to make that trip to Mecca and then hopefully one day God will shine upon me and I'll be saved. Or you can just take God at his word and say grace is found in Jesus Christ and in no one else and no one else's effort. But it's out of that grace that we're supposed to grow. I don't know how well you're doing in that. But I know God's grace is good. And his promises are true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today. God, I'm just, I'm a shell of a man. As I prayed before I came up here, Lord, I didn't want it to be about me. I didn't want it to be about my message and my, the likability of, of myself with this people. God, I want it to be about your word. God, you are so good, and your ways are right. And the very grace that you offer changes everything. Lord God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the love that you have poured out over us. We honor you, Lord Jesus, and you alone. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. 